Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discuss the COVID-19 outbreak and what you can do to stay safe, learned how Britain conquered the Middle East, and read new award-winning fiction. All this for the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review from March 20th, 2020. Jamie chatted with Alan Helm, biosafety officer at the University of Chicago, about the coronavirus outbreak. Helm discussed mitigation, transmission, and what lessons might be learned from this growing pandemic. This is the second part of our two-part interview with Helm on Radio Free Bridgeport. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time. How is this new virus transmitted? And are people right to be so worried about it from a, a kind of a biological safety point of view? So uh, the data are still coming in. You know, it, it's very interesting. Like new, even new papers are coming in. Well, initially, new 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 publications were coming out like in, in legitimate journals every day. Now it seems like every week. Um, so, but based on the data uh, that I've read, and by the way, I'm getting most of my information from the World Health Organization, the CDC, which is still putting out really good information. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm getting this information. It looks like uh, the routes of transmission are um, uh, respiratory droplets. Okay. Let's say someone has it, and, and it does like your respiratory system. You cough, you sneeze. There are droplets in the air. Now, droplets are a little different from aerosols. Aerosols are very, 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 very tiny, and they actually just hang out in the air. The only way an aerosol usually will leave the room is through the building ventilation system. Okay. It appears, at least from the data so far, that uh, COVID-19 doesn't really spread by that true aerosol route, but it's droplets. Okay. And droplets can expel, I think what I've read, up to six feet. Okay. So, uh, but but let, let's say if somebody coughs and like two minutes later you walk into the room, you're not going to catch it from the air. Okay. So right? that, that actually means it's not as serious as it could be, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so if it were truly, okay. it, well, and, and it may be, but, but so far, if the data that, that, that I'm seeing are, are right, then... Um, yeah, it's not a true aerosol, and that would be a bigger deal because let's say somebody sneezed in here and then somebody comes in 20 minutes later, they could right. potentially inhale it. Right. Okay. The other route uh, appears to be by contact. So let's say somebody sneezes on their hand, they touch the doorknob, right. then I touch the doorknob, and at that point, your skin, first of all, it won't go through your skin. Right. Skin's an amazing barrier. Uh, things like that will get in through your mucous membranes, right. which are your eyes, nose, and your mouth. Yep. So what happens is, let's say somebody sneezes on their hand, they touch the doorknob, then somebody who's not infected touches that doorknob and rubs their eye, rubs their nose, you know, puts it in their mouth, and uh, without washing their hands or, or, or sanitizing their hands, right. and then it can transfer that way. So it's my understanding we're looking at respiratory droplets and contact and direct inoculation of the mucous membranes. Okay, so this is, this is really important. So basically... Uh, one, there is some good news about this. The fact is, if it was a, it, it, again, as you say, the data so far does not suggest it's an aerosol transmission. Mm-hmm. It, it, that is good news because it means potentially it is less uh, transmissible than it would be. Correct. And second, it seems that people can do some fairly straightforward and easy things to protect themselves from it, namely, number one, washing their hands. It really is. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's, you know, we keep hearing this over and over, mm-hmm. but it really does help. 
it really does help. And normally, I'm not a big advocate of hand sanitizer, ethanol-based hand sanitizer, because nothing it doesn't remove anything from your hands. Right. It kills certain things, but 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 a good hand sanitizer is going to be ethanol-based, uh-huh. and it's going to be at least sixty percent. Okay. Future reference: seventy percent is the magic number for alcohol. Okay. If it gets too low, it doesn't work. If it gets too high, it doesn't work very well. Seventy is that magic number. So if you got a hand sanitizer that's at least sixty percent, uh, coronaviruses fall in a, in a group of viruses called enveloped viruses because they have this lipid membrane around them. They have this okay. little fatty. Well, that's fat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They've got this fatty membrane around them, and if you can trash that membrane, then the virus is dead. Huh. And and alcohol dissolves fats pretty easily. So hand washing, and uh, you know they're saying twenty seconds. You know, they, and I've looked at some some numbers like. First of all, washing your hands for three seconds is better than not washing your hands at right, all. Right, right, right. Uh, and there's a lot of people that aren't washing their hands, that didn't wash their hands before at all, that are doing it now. But but apparently there's 20 seconds of hand washing. And, and, and uh, you know, if you have some hand sanitizer, it would help after the fact. Because you want to remove the grease and stuff like that from your hands. The soap and water will do that. Yeah. And then the, then the alcohol from the hand sanitizer could uh, clean up. Another cool thing is because these viruses, envelope viruses... They're not, compared to other microbes and even other viruses, they're not particularly stable in the environment for very, very long. And soap kills it. Soap will kill envelope viruses because, again, we're talking about a fatty envelope. Of course. And and detergent, you know, soap breaks up fats. So, yeah, any kind of detergent, uh, Dawn, for example, when when birds uh, get caught in environmental disasters, Mm -hmm. even... even, you know, you can clean seagulls with it to get oil off them because it's an excellent exactly right. dispersal medium. And when you strip the oil off of a coronavirus or other envelope viruses, that it's out of commission. It's done. It That's can't incredible. do anything. So, and it's interesting, you know, Alan, you and I were talking just before the show started. Um, we were talking about how the precautions people are taking now to COVID-19 might actually affect people who've been hit with seasonal flu as well. Absolutely. Because it's the same exact protocol for mm-hmm. seasonal flu. Yep. Um, now we have a, I'm not going to call him a leader, but we have someone that, that keeps going around <laughs> comparing the COVID-19 virus to the flu. The flu, you know, is people die from the flu. There's no yep. question about that. In fact, yep, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you probably have more up-to-date numbers than I do, yep. but I mean, it is it is less than 1% of people that get infected with the flu that die from it. And the reason COVID-19 is causing so much concern is because the uh, mortality rate seems to be around 3.7%, which is a that's many thousand times mm-hmm. more extreme than even the seasonal flu. Yeah. Um, so first off, because the data are still coming in, uh, I take that number with a couple of grains of salt. Sure. Because that the that is you take the number of known deaths divided by the number of reported cases. Right. The idea is there's probably a lot of people that have had COVID nineteen and never even reported it. Gotcha. You know, they just felt bad for a few days, you know, and they just kind of chalked it up to whatever, and they didn't have it reported. Right. But it does appear to be more, at least so far, the fatality rate does seem to be higher. And it appears to, I don't, well, you know what, I don't know. I, epidemiologists could tell you if, if the infection radius and the, and the infection rate is, is higher than the flu. Mm-hmm. Like, like how many people can one person infect with the flu versus how many, uh, how oh, many people can one person infect with, with COVID-19. Um, but, 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 you know, you bring up the flu, it's a great point. So it just in the, I just got this from the CDC a few days ago. Um, we've got about, what, 300, 350 million people in this country. Yep. About 10% um, have, been, have been thought to have the flu. 34 million people. 
Which is a sizable number. It it is. And of them, about 10% were hospitalized. We've had about 350,000 hospitalizations because of influenza. And so far, and again, this is this flu season, not just the beginning of the year, but when the flu season started last fall, we've had over 20,000 people in the United States alone die from the flu. And that number will increase tomorrow and the day after that until the flu season is over. So, you know, you ask, you know, how concerned should we be? Well, we should be concerned. Um, but we have another virus here, and that virus is going to come back next year. It comes, right. you know, influenza is with us. You know, comes back every year in a little well, bit COVID-19 of a different flavor could as well. It very well could. Uh, from some things again, I, and I'm not also not an immunologist, right. um, but uh, it looks like the immune response that spikes from this thing is not really sufficient to give you lifetime immunity. Uh, let's let, let's talk about that because that's a really interesting point. So there is no vaccine right now for COVID nineteen at all. Yep. And of course, uh, we do get a flu vaccine every year, yep. especially people if you're smart. Um, <laughs> my moment of public service is telling you that vaccines are not harmful. Yep. There's no autism caused by vaccines. There's no heavy metals in vaccines. Yep. Please please get vaccinated. Yep. Your your friendly radio host with asthma, mm-hmm. serious health problems, really wants you to be vaccinated. Because if I get the flu, right. I'll probably be okay. But if I transmit it to you with asthma, it's Correct. a different ballgame. It, it's a very different thing. And, yep. you know, some people believe, you know, that there's this herd immunity. Well, herd immunity only happens when a very large number of people have been vaccinated and are immune yep. to a disease. Exactly. Um, and in fact, you know, this is a, a little bit of a side note, but, you know, in the United States, we did a very good job of eradicating certain diseases like polio and smallpox. Mm-hmm. Some of those diseases, because people have resisted vaccines, have started to come back. Exactly. These diseases don't go away yeah. just because you forgot about them. And, and and I think this is a point with, you know, both the flu and COVID-19. Mm-hmm. We are at least 18 months maybe more from a viable vaccine for this, according to the CDC, from Correct. what I saw today. Yep. Uh, we have flu vaccines that, that change every year. Many people may not know this, but, you know, it, people make predictions on basically what the flu season is going to look like, and they make kind of a, a cocktail, from what I understand, mm-hmm. of different strains weekend to try to give you the best protection. Uh, I know a couple of years ago the vaccine was not thought to be super effective, and I know this year it is thought to be fairly effective. Okay. Uh, it kind of goes up and down. But every year, none of these flu strains go away. Correct. COVID-19 is not just going to suddenly disappear because someone magically says we've got to contain. Yeah. So even if this does burn out, let's say, in, in May or June, November could roll around and we could have another outbreak of this. That's possible. Yeah. And yeah. so I guess the point that I'm getting to here is how important is it? And again, you know, you're, you're a biosafety guy. I know this. You're not an immunologist right, or a virologist, right. but you do work with this. When these vaccines are available, how important will it be for people to get vaccinated? Well, I, I think if you're talking about a 2 to 4% fatality rate, I think it's very important. I think it would be very important to get vaccinated. Are you talking about COVID-19? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. If, if there's a COVID-19 uh, a vaccine, I think um, it, it would be silly not to get it. Right. And and, and also, honestly, selfish right. to people. Because, again, I, I'm going to survive COVID-19. Right. Well, when um, you're a younger guy. Right. Right. Well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 yeah. Relatively, and I'm not in a demographic that, that that seems to be dying from it. But I can become a carrier. 
Right. And then I can transmit it to other people. Right. And that's true for many vaccines, including the flu vaccine. Right. I'll be honest with you. I actually didn't get the I'm, I'm obviously very pro vaccine. Mm-hmm. I think I'm up on all my shots. But I hesitated on the flu vaccine because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you know, it's not really 100 percent. And and, uh, you know, the flu is not going to kill me. Uh, but I talked to a virology. Re- uh, he was actually a, an influenza researcher. Okay. And I asked him what he did. He's like, yeah, I get it because I'm taking care of the people around me. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So how, you know, we this week has been a crazy week. We've seen the stock market go up and down. We've mm-hmm. seen uh, sports leagues. You know, just today, uh, the European Cup is going on in uh, Spain. Uh, games in Italy have been canceled. There's no, no people going out. Is this... Italy, you know, locked down the entire country. Yeah. You know, not yep. even not even sports games. What am I talking about here? What is this a rational and logical thing? Because I think, you know, sometimes we look at it, you know, we're hearing this, oh, you know, maybe this is a little kind of crazy town. What's your take on this? It's a great question. And and again, I hate to keep deflecting, but but this is like epidemiologists, people who have made their career of studying these kinds of numbers. Uh, they're also probably they're very likely physicians. They're also very likely microbiologists with a lot of expertise, and they've come to this decision. I don't think a decision like that comes uh, easily. Well, so, no. I mean, and, and honestly, I personally have no. Well, I, I have a choice. I don't have to trust them, but but I do trust. I, I do trust them. Um, because they're experts. And again, I think whenever you deal with any of this kind of stuff, you 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 find experts uh, with different different sets of eyes, different levels of expertise, and different expertise in different uh, in different things, and you get them all together and you come to a decision. Well, I mean, I think that's a great point, and I think one of the things that the current administration has been criticized for has been not having that expertise in place. But you you said yourself, you know, that the information coming from the CDC is good, right? Yeah, and, right and now so, that's right, and so. I know there's been some some you know politicking uh, largely on on one side, but it, how concerned should we be about the response that our government has taken to this from a from a biosafety point of view? Well, I, I I honestly don't trust the head of the executive branch of the federal government at all. Okay, um, but I did look up so the director of the CDC. Mm-hmm. I, I looked him up, and although he was appointed by this current president. Uh, and and I, I, it looks like there were some there there was some controversy about his pay, mm-hmm. and some of his political stances. He's a virologist. He actually I think was involved in in the early identification of HIV with Bob Gallo. Okay. Um, and Bob Gallo is somebody. Oh, that you, oh so yeah, you yeah, sorry. Know. Bob Gallo was 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 one of the one the co-discoverers of HIV with yep. with a French group. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like his chops are are are, are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so far, and, and I could be wrong. I, I welcome anybody to, to you know point me if I'm, point, point it out if I'm wrong. But but um, I don't see the CDC being silenced here. I'll also point out the National Institutes for Health. Mm-hmm. You know the NIH has multiple institutes underneath it. Right. The biggest or one of the biggest ones, the the National Institute of Infectious uh, Disease and Allergies (NIAID). Uh, uh, Tony Fauci, mm-hmm. he's been there for multiple administrations. Right. Yeah. Tony Fauci's been there. For yeah, a long yeah, time. yeah. 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 Fauci's been there for a while, and 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 I haven't seen him being. Uh, 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 He's not harnessed. a loose cannon. No. No, right. And I haven't seen him being like a, a, a restrained or anything like that. No. But but I agree. I, I have the same skepticism as you do uh, of the federal government at the very top level. But so far, from what I'm seeing, uh, the information is coming out is free and reliable. 
Um, so, I, but but then there's also the World Health Organization. Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of look around at the World Health Organization, and then the CDC. And you know, closer to home, we have the Illinois Department of Public Health that's updating their information on a very regular basis. And even closer to home, the Chicago Department of Public Health. Right. They're uh, they're updating their information. So, uh, but for now, and, and it is. I mean, once you start silencing scientists. I mean, right. Well, let but, me, well, I mean, you know, let yeah. me let me say something. In fact, that, you know, Scott Gottlieb, who is the Food and Drug Administration uh, commissioner, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this was an official statement. Uh, he said, quote, we're past the point of containment. We have to implement broad mitigation strategies. The next two weeks are really going to change the complexion in this country. We'll get through this, but it's going to be hard. Uh, we're looking at two months. And we just mentioned Tony Fauci. Yeah. Um, when you have containment, which you're trying to find out who's infected and put them in isolation, and if and when that happens, and I hope it's if and not when, that you get so many people who are infected, the best thing you need to do is what we call mitigation in addition to containment. Mm-hmm. So as you said, they are coming out with some actual rational Right, and that is not something I would expect the president to say. Chuck Mertz spoke to historian An Barak about how coal transformed the Middle East. Barak discusses how the British Empire helped turn the region into weak, easily controlled petrostates, and how the collapse of the empire turned the region into a tinderbox. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Here to tell us how we get got to where we are with energy and its impact on the entire planet, An Barak is author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. Welcome to This Is Hell, An. Thank you, Chuck. Good to be on the show. An is co-founder and co-editor of the Social History Workshop, a weekly blog published on the Heretz website analyzing current Middle Eastern affairs through the lens of contemporary historical research. You can find that blog at levantine-journal.org slash blog. He's also author of the 2013 title, On Time Technology and Temporality in modern Egypt. You write, the Middle East, which is now mostly associated with oil extraction and American power, was in its history turned into a coherent region by British coal and imperial interventionism. This legacy provides an opportunity for a reappraisal of the entanglements of energy and empire, of classical and neo-imperialism, and of coal and oil, unsettling the familiar geographies of extraction and combustion. Coal's peculiar Middle Eastern career exposes both these processes and the 
connections between them to inquiry. In short, it should help us understand the complex process by which the hydrocarbon economy was created and globalized. Was the British coal and imperial interventionism in the Middle East was that seeking oil? Was were they in? Were they seeking yet again a new energy source? Because often when I hear people talk about the British Empire and their involvement with the Middle East, it seems to be focused around oil, and rarely does it discuss coal. Right, uh, and I think that's true for uh, many people. When many, when most of us think about the Middle East, we immediately associate the region with oil. But um, I argue that the very middleness of the Middle East is a product of British coal, so not oil extracted from the region and going outside, but rather a fossil fuel that comes from um, under the British Isles coming into the region and a series of coaling depots from London, uh, Gibraltar, Malta, Port Said, Aden and Bombay that facilitates the British India traffic is actually what creates the middleness of the Middle East and what makes it a strategic uh, region that uh, imperialism is, is interested in. We blame the global fossil fuel economy on the Middle East. What do we miss when we do not hold the British Empire and its history responsible for fossil fuel use and even its role in contributing to climate change? Well, we miss the fact that um, climate change has a deeper history uh, and that uh, this history is implicated with imperialism. Um, actually, one of the titles I played with uh, for my book was Colonialism, C-O-A-L, uh, that tries to capture together or to wed together uh, energy and empire uh, and to think about uh, the proliferation of uh, the first fossil fuel, that is coal, as an imperial strategy. Uh, and, um, you know, in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the British Empire is not very much interested in fossil fuels. It's um, often interested in land grab and it's uh, creating this, uh, these coaling stations, these fueling stations, just as an excuse to capture territory and footholds in uh, new regions uh, and, uh, and, uh, and thereby facilitating its imperial, imperial expansion. Can you have colonialism without coal? Because I agree with you. I, I liked your earlier title, and that's uh, part of your book. You actually keep using the word over and over again, colonialism. And I really do think that might have been better than powering empire. I'm not too sure. I'm kind of up in the air on it. But can you have colonialism without coal? Well, uh, I don't know about other places, but uh, if you think of a region uh, such as the Middle East, which is hot and sweltering, it's very hard to imagine uh, foreign presence and garrisons without, for example, water desalination devices that are coal-fueled. Uh, so you cannot sustain uh, a foreign army without an empire of condensers that uh, burns these fossil fuels that, that, that comes from the British Isles uh, and uh, allows for steam navigation and for um, um, European troops in places like Aden and the Arabian Peninsula and uh, Port Said and elsewhere. You cannot have imperialism and colonialism without ice machines that, uh, I mean, right, we, we think of uh, the age of the steamer uh, and of coal um, itself as a generator of heat, but um, uh, coal burning devices also produced cold and ice machines. And without these ice machines, you cannot have steam navigation because you cannot have 
um, uh, people working in uh, the sweltering, um, uh, horrible conditions in the boiler room, um, uh, requiring ice baths uh, when uh, they fainted and, uh, and had to be resuscitated um, in the upper deck with ice that was produced uh, by these coal-fired um, uh, ice machines. So in a theater, in an environment that is hot, that is sweltering, uh, you uh, absolutely require uh, these kinds of uh, devices, not to mention the uh, broader political economy with uh, the shift to cash crops. So we think of uh, a place like Egypt, we immediately in the 19th century associated with long staple cotton. Uh, this cotton is uh, increasingly dependent on perennial irrigation that is itself in turn uh, dependent on, uh, on steam pumps. Uh, so, um, right around when uh, uh, the British Isles undergo an industrial revolution that uh, uses steam engines in uh, factories, uh, imperial peripheries, such as many places in the Middle East, undergo an agrarian, an, an agrarian industrial revolution that is as dependent on coal, as dependent on steam engines, uh, and, uh, and that is part and parcel of the global imperial economy that um, uh, the British Empire is orchestrating in uh, regions such as the Middle East and, and elsewhere, and you know, South Asia and many other places. But we see these technologies, we view these technologies like refrigeration, for instance. We view refrigeration as something that uh, helps end human misery because we have uh, the ability to freeze our food, to keep our food for a longer period of time. But when I see them through your eyes, through your writing in your book, I see these as technologies of imperialism, uh, technologies of building empire. Why do we view these as only technologies of ending human misery and not see their use when they are applied within colonialism and the subjugation of other people? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I, I should make very clear that um, uh, cooling devices and refrigerators and, and uh, steam engines and, and technologies can be put to very uh, valuable and, um, and auspicious uses. Uh, and it in co cooling muscles, cooling foods, uh, increases life, life expectancy, um, allows uh, sustaining growing populations, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, these technologies also can be put to um, uh, many other uses. Uh, and uh, especially if you consider, uh, to take your example, uh, the early uh, refrigeration devices uh, and uh, the possibilities that they open up for, say, cooling food, uh, also launches um, global carnivority, right? The uh, vast shift in the 19th century to uh, protein-based diet to um, to eating animals. Uh, animals are actually uh, uh, during the 19th century um, uh, gradually cease to become engines and increasingly become fuel or food. Yeah, they stop becoming uh, driving forces and workers, and uh, increasingly they become um, uh, food and meat. Uh, and if we think about the contribution of uh, this process to global warming. Uh, uh, that, that uh, certainly leaves uh, a, a tremendous impact. Um, so, um, you know, uh, every technology uh, can be put to uh, multiple uses, uh, but uh, especially these coal-fired technologies 
are uh, traditionally uh, considered to be labor-saving devices, uh, right? Uh, the steam engine is supposed to make redundant the reliance on uh, manpower and on human muscles. But in fact, uh, when we look uh, carefully, we see that um, there is, uh, rather than a shift between energy regimes and uh, a series of energy transitions animated by these technologies, we see actually an intensification, an intensification in the reliance on, on manpower and human muscle, an intensification in, in biomass and in the various kinds of reliance on muscle, on the muscles of animals. Uh, and uh, seen through the eyes of the of the planet, if you if you if you will, uh, that has tremendous repercussions uh, for um, uh, for our uh, condition today. Uh, if we are yet to see an energy transition in the sense of leaving an, an energy source behind, if our story is actually a story of accumulation and intensification, then uh, we um, uh, th then you know also moving forward, uh, we have little reason to expect uh, a post-oil or a post-fossil fuel uh, future, where in fact history does not uh, demonstrate that uh, we have left something in our past. We are only accumulating. Alright, I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning and I'm pilfering food and stuff from the GoPro. I'm pretty good at knowing I'm pretty good at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I, I almost got... Oh, who's that? What the, who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't, like, plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want and where it is before you take it. Was that? Alright. Alright, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. What was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I, it's gone. Okay, I gotta make this quick. Alright. Alright. I got the chips. Next time I list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need... Let's check the icebox. Uh, really, oh, oh, nice! Oh, ah, oh, my back. Get off me! Ah, get off me! Oh, oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face just got scratched! Oh. Oh, I gotta get to the closet. Okay, get the... I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature with blades for hands was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. Yeah, I gotta get the light. <laughs> Come on out, you coward. 
Here it comes, I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. <laughs> you sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? Uh, sorry I scared you. Take my chips and salsa and be on my way. Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Yoink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words. This week on The Trump Diaries, overnight, America changes. Trump's response to the coronavirus crisis draws outrage. Trump tries to buy a vaccine from Germany for the United States only. We are warned that unemployment could hit 20%. The Senate passes a relief deal with a trillion dollar bill in the wings. And Trump claims he always knew it was a pandemic. He didn't. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1148, March 12th. The fast moving coronavirus outbreak has changed the United States overnight. Markets fled from what appears to be a global recession exacerbated by Trump's stuttering response to the pandemic. The head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease warned Americans things will get worse. Trump responded in a primetime address by banning all travel from Europe for 30 days, a decision met with bafflement and anger. Claiming that a foreign virus had invaded the United States from Europe, Trump's ban applies to all nations except the United Kingdom. Reading from a prepared script, Trump incorrectly described his own policy, saying the restrictions would impact a tremendous amount of trade and cargo. Notably, Trump's restrictions exempted nations where his three golf courses are located. Trump then said he would sign a limited federal disaster declaration. He did not want to go further because he feared it would undermine the narrative that the coronavirus is similar to the seasonal flu. When even Vice President Mike Pence criticized people for downplaying the severity of the situation, Trump responded by claiming, quote, the fake news media and their partner, the Democrat Party, is doing everything to inflame the coronavirus situation. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the NAIAD, stepped into the vacuum and bluntly said things are going to get worse. Quote, we will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. Fauci said COVID-19 is at least 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. 150 Americans are now expected to contract COVID-19, that is one in two. In a sign of how serious adults were taking the viral outbreak, almost every sports organization canceled or delayed their seasons. March Madness was canceled. The NBA suspended its season along with the NHL and Major League Soccer. Major League Baseball quit spring training and has moved its opening day back into May. The Treasury is now considering extending the April 15th tax deadline in response to the economic disruption. California banned all gatherings over 250 people. Overseas, Italy ordered all restaurants and bars to close. Germany said 70% of its population may be infected. Fearing leaks and unflattering media coverage, Trump ordered all meetings discussing coronavirus to be classified. This actually delayed the response to the crisis. One administration official told the Washington Post the security clearances were not required to protect national security, but to prevent leaks. 
Despite claiming millions of tests would be available, the total number of people tested for the coronavirus in the United States by the CDC as of today was 1,784. Day 1,149, March 13th. Claiming he was using two very big words, Trump declared a national emergency. He then immediately and falsely blamed existing rules for limiting his options, saying, quote, I don't take responsibility at all for the lack of available testing. When asked about the closure of the White House's pandemic response team in 2018, Trump called it a nasty question and denied firing the team, saying, I mean, you say you say we did that. I don't know anything about it footage of him firing the team in the White House almost immediately appeared online. He concluded by blaming Obama for, quote, bungling the response to swine flu, calling it a full-scale disaster. This is untrue. Nancy Pelosi publicly implored the Trump administration and congressional Republicans to back a massive stimulus effort and put families first after days of frustrating negotiations with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Trump responded by accusing Democrats of not doing what's right for the country because the bill would, among other things, would provide paid leave to Americans who can't work during the pandemic. Trump also has inexplicably been pushing a payroll tax cut, which has no support even among Republicans. Trump also has blocked states from using Medicaid to expand medical services as part of the response to the pandemic. This is because he is attempting to downplay the severity of the outbreak. He also plans to move ahead with enacting strict work requirements on people who use food stamps on April 1st. 700,000 people will immediately lose SNAP eligibility as a result because they will be forced to work 20 hours a week, and with most service jobs furloughed nationwide, there are no places for them to go. Coronavirus also swept through the halls of power, with the Australian Minister for Home Affairs testing positive days after meeting with the Attorney General William Barr, Ivanka Trump, and Kellyanne Conway. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife also both tested positive. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, asked his brother's wife, father, to crowdsource coronavirus response recommendations from physicians on Facebook. Kurt Kloss sent Kushner 12 recommendations. Trump tested negative for the coronavirus. Meanwhile, the White House started checking the temperatures of anyone in close contact with either Trump or Pence. And on Fox, Tucker Carlson delivered grave warnings about the coronavirus, accusing officials of minimizing, quote, what is clearly a very serious problem. Immediately after, Sean Hannity responded by calling it, quote, fear-mongering by the deep state. Day 1150, March 14th. American airports reeled after a night of chaos. People were jammed together for hours as they waited for new health screenings mandated for travelers from Europe in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. In Illinois, Governor J.B. Pritzker directly attacked Trump for seven-hour waits and crowded conditions at O'Hare, begging the feds to supply enough workers and to get their act together. The House passed a coronavirus aid package directing tens of billions of dollars for paid sick leave, unemployment insurance, free testing, and other resources intended to help stem the crisis. Trump endorsed the legislation, and Mitch McConnell suggested it will be supported in the Senate. As the stock market continued its freefall, Trump was apparently worrying about the fate of the football season. Trump feared the NFL may preemptively announce it was following the NBA and NHL and suspend or delay operations. He called them and begged them not to cancel the season. Trump falsely claimed that 1,700 engineers at Google were working on a coronavirus test-finding tool that would be ready in a few days. This was wildly untrue and sent executives at Alphabet into a panic. Trump said this because the idea had been pushed by son-in-law Jared Kushner. Google did finally get a site up. It swiftly crashed. The Supreme Court allowed the Trump administration to maintain its Remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers. 
A lower court had ruled the policy was at odds with both federal law and international treaties and was causing extreme and irreversible harm. However, the Supreme Court has allowed the policy to stay in place while appeals are heard. The policy affects some 60,000 migrants. And it has been reported the Trump Organization paid bribes through middlemen to lower its property tax bills for several Manhattan buildings in the 1980s and 1990s. Two city employees said on the record they personally took bribes to lower the assessment on a Trump property. Three others said they knew of the payments. And Trump told governors that states should work on getting their own respirators and ventilators and not to wait for the federal government to provide them. Day 1151, March 15th. In a major escalation, San Francisco ordered all 7 million residents of the Bay Area to shelter in place until April. Mayor London Breed said the city will require people to stay home except for essential needs. Places like grocery stores, gas stations, banks will remain open. Trump apparently offered large sums of money to a German company for exclusive access to a COVID-19 vaccine. Trump offered CureVac roughly $1 billion for exclusive access to the vaccine, but only for use in the United States. Germany's health ministry confirmed that Trump had made the offer and that Berlin has been offering CureVac financial incentives to instead remain in Germany. Trump and the White House denied making that offer, calling it a fake news story. A college group in London reported that if nothing was done by governments and individuals and the pandemic remained uncontrolled, 500,000 people would die in Britain and 2.2 million in the United States. The numbers stunned the Trump administration, which had been previously told the numbers were far lower. The coronavirus hit Mar-a-Lago at a 50th birthday party for Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, the former Fox News personality Kimberly Guilfoyle. RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel announced after attending the party she was self-quarantining after experiencing flu-like symptoms. Tucker Carlson apparently attended the party to confront Trump directly about his failure to take the virus seriously. The party was also paid for by Trump backers. Among the donors were at least four whose families are financial supporters of Trump's re-election campaign. The party cost $50,000 and created the appearance of supporters currying favor with his family by steering money into his private businesses. Even some of Trump's senior advisors viewed the party and its financial arrangements as problematic and unsavory, particularly during a pandemic. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell has been contacting sitting federal judges and urging them to quit. McConnell has contacted an unknown number of Republican nomination judges who are eligible to retire and reminded them if they don't retire soon, they may have to wait another eight years before they can leave under another Republican administration. And the Department of Health and Human Services was hit by a cyber attack. The activity was a DDoS attack designed to overload the HHS servers with millions of hits. No data was stolen. Day 1,152, March 16th. The Dow suffered the worst one-day market crash since 1987, with the index dropping 3,000 points. That is a 20% write-off on the market. The Fed slashed interest rates to zero in response and said it would inject $500 billion into the economy. At a press conference, Trump recommended all Americans avoid groups of 10 or more people, stop traveling, and avoid all public places for the next 15 days. Trump also recommended that all schools close and that Americans should expect cases to extend into at least July. Trump said, quote, this is a bad one. This is a very bad one. This is bad in the sense that it's so contagious. It's just so contagious, sort of a record-setting type contagion. Trump then proceeded to give his administration's response to the epidemic a 10 out of 10, saying, quote, I think we've done a great job. There have been more than 4,000 confirmed cases in the United States and 71 deaths. 
Trump is strongly considering a full pardon for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Quote, after destroying his life and the life of his wonderful family and many others, also the FBI, working in conjunction with the Justice Department has lost the records of Michael Flynn. How convenient. I'm strongly considering a full pardon. There is no evidence the Justice Department has lost any records related to Flynn who committed perjury. The Supreme Court has delayed oral arguments over concerns about the ongoing pandemic. The court was scheduled to hear a handful of high-profile cases starting next week, including an argument over Trump's attempts to keep Congress and a New York prosecutor from seeing his tax returns. It is the first time the Supreme Court has been suspended since 1918's Spanish influenza epidemic. And White House aides are fearing the worst, with Trump having no adults left in the room. Quote, what's he going to do, watch reruns of the Masters from 2017? He's just going to watch TV and tweet, and it's going to get worse. Day 1153, March 17th. Calling the coronavirus a Chinese virus, Trump called Congress to go big and approve a $1 trillion stimulus package. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, sounding oddly like the TV spokesman for J.D. Wentworth, said that Trump had told him that Americans need cash now, Americans need cash now, and would send $250 billion in cash payments to Americans by the end of April. Mnuchin also announced a controversial $50 billion bailout for the airline industry, claiming this is worse than 9-11 for the airline industry. Airlines actually have used profits over the last year to purchase nearly $35 billion worth of stock buybacks. Trump, however, claimed if we do this right, we're going to win the war against the coronavirus. Trump then claimed falsely he always viewed coronavirus as a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. In fact, Trump has repeatedly mocked it as nothing more than a cold or flu, said that one day the coronavirus will disappear like a miracle, and that coronavirus is a new hoax by Democrats. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio also said citizens should prepare for a shelter-in-place order. Related news, the European Union has closed its borders to all for 30 days. Meanwhile, the Justice Department quietly moved to drop charges against two Russian shell companies accused of financing efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Concord Management and Concord Consulting were indicted for using social media to spread disinformation and sabotage the election. Prosecutors call on the Department of Justice to drop the charges because discovery would allow Concord, quote, to use the judicial system to gather information about how the U.S. detects and prevents foreign election interference. Day 1154, March 18th. Trump again referred to COVID-19 as a Chinese virus in a news conference. In a related story, a Chinese-American news reporter said that a White House official referred to the coronavirus as the Kung Flu to her face. The U.S.-Canada border, the longest undefended border in the world, will be shut down by mutual consent for 30 days. Also, Trump invoked the 1950s-era Defense Production Act and activated FEMA to level one. The White House asked Congress to allocate $500 billion for two separate waves of direct payments to American taxpayers in the coming weeks and another $300 billion to help small businesses continue to meet payroll. The Exchange Stabilization Fund, an emergency reserve account that is usually used for intervening in currency markets, will be used to cover those costs. Trump also claimed, quote, for the people that are now out of work because of the important and necessary containment policies, for instance, the shutting down of hotels, bars, and restaurants, money will soon be coming to you. The onslaught of the Chinese virus is not your fault. We'll be stronger than ever. Trump wanted to issue an executive order expanding the use of investigational drugs against the coronavirus, but the Food and Drug Administration scotched that, warning it could pose unneeded risks to patients. 
Researchers have concluded the only viable strategy at the current time to contain the coronavirus is to keep social distancing measures in place for at least three months. Even so, the virus is now likely to overwhelm hospitals many times over and would slow but not stop the spread. The other unintended side effect would be to deny quick community immunity to COVID-19. The Department of Veterans Affairs removed its mission statement to serve as a backup health system in times of crisis for the United States from its website. That has been part of the VA's mission since 1982. This week, all references to that mission were removed and replaced. It is unclear why. 18% of Americans say they've been laid off or that their work hours have been cut because of the pandemic. 56% of Americans considered the coronavirus outbreak a real threat, while 38% said it was blown out of proportion. 37% of Americans say they have a good amount of trust in what they're hearing from Trump. 60% say they have no trust at all. Just 40% of Americans trust Trump to protect them. These are the Trump Diaries. The Sean Maxwell Quartet rolled into Studio A for a John Daly session, debuting songs from their upcoming release, Millstream. It was engineered by Ari Shellist.
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.